Take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 6 and following. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we know that your word is truth, for you are true. Your word is truth, for you are true, and we desperately need to hear from you. We ask that you would speak through your scriptures, speak through the illumination of the Spirit, applying the word to our hearts, so that we might see Jesus and see ourselves and see the gap between the two and trust in Him. Lord, that is an amazingly large request if we're honest about who we are. But You are the mighty God. There is none like You. May Your name be praised in the reading and preaching of Your Word, we ask. For Christ's sake, Amen. Many years ago, went to London for a trip. I've been to London a number of times. I love going to the UK. I enjoy London particularly. But this one trip had a significant kind of moment for us. My friend and I were traveling through the city and kind of wandering aimlessly and enjoying the sights and learning kind of just what's going on and enjoying what makes the UK the UK and all the differences and quirks that are there. While we were wandering through London, we happened upon a parade. And everybody loves parades, right? Parades are fun. This parade was classic non-American parade. It was fantastic. It had all the parts and the pomp and the circumstances of a British parade. You have the horses and the soldiers riding on them. And you have all of the funny hats and the funny uniforms and the funny, I might even go so far as to call them costumes, but don't say that to their faces. This just kind of massive parade and you have the, you know, the troops going through and then you have the band and the marching band and it's all, you know, the full, all of the history of a nation that has been founded for thousands of years, you know. 
And then you get to the center of the, the parade, the part that's supposed to have you know, the, the most grandeur by American standards. That's where we get you know, the giant Snoopy balloon flying through, uh, you know, all the things that are like the most captivating for the eyes. Those are the things where it's like, oh, look, it's you know, sensory overload right here in this exact moment. That's what our parades are. This one was hysterical, though, because as an American, I was unbelievably confused because you get to the climax of the parade, you know, that part where it's the most serious, and it's a bunch of gentlemen wearing three-piece suits and bowler hats, smiling and walking, chatting amiably with each other, and that was it. And then the bands start again, and the horses, and the soldiers, and the troops, and everything. The parade was obviously designed for the guys in bowler caps. This is the most odd thing as an American because for us, our parades are so much about sensory overload, right? We like noises and sounds and we like candy and flashing things and sequins and stuff moving. And it's because our parades are designed around an experience. This parade was designed around dignity and grandeur and glory. These men in the bowler caps deserved honor. And so they were given soldiers and horses and bands and all kinds of amazing things so that when the men in the suits showed up, everybody standing there realized these men are important. These men are special. Now, honestly, I, I have not been able to figure out what that parade actually was. I've looked it up on the internet. I have no idea. Best guess I have is that those were actually war veterans, and they were celebrating the actual like vets of, of you know, one of the previous major wars. Uh, I have no idea. I can't figure it out. I have no clue. But it actually fits the perfect illustration. I don't know who I was talking about, but I know they were important. Right? Just the, the DNA of the experience was enough to convey to just your uneducated, ignorant American viewer, these men are significant. These men deserve glory. Where we are in the book of John, John is setting up the story of Christ in a similar fashion. Master storyteller telling us the same kind of experience. Not one that's all filled with noises and sounds and sights that's going to kind of grab us, you know, by the collar and yank us in. That's going to be Mark, right? That's how he reads. Almost no dialogue. All action all the time. It's a Michael Bay movie. That's Mark. John is not. It's dialogue. And he's telling us the story of Christ. And he's setting it up so that even if you don't know who Jesus is, by the time you get there, you realize this guy is something unique. He's something special. He's something altogether different, and he's altogether glorious. I I don't know who he is yet, maybe, but he's grand. And he started in verses 1 through 5, and he's introduced us first to the idea of Christ's glory, but even more so to saying this one, who we're going to find out later is called Jesus, existed prior to time and space. He's one of the ones, he's part of the Godhead, the the persons that spoke creation into existence. He was the agent of creation is the technical theological term. And he deserves glory. 
In these verses here, the story is set up with kind of four pieces. You know, a great witness, a great arrival, a great rejection, a great mercy. And it kind of flows really beautifully. The first is the great witness. John joins with the other witnesses of creation to declare the person and work of Christ. There was a man. That's interesting because John actually up to this point hasn't really been talking about a man. Now we find out later in the chapter, Jesus is a man. He's going to find out in verse 14. But thus far, John has been setting us up to understand the one whom this story is about is totally different. He's unique. He's amazing. He's special. He's grand. He's glorious. And then now, oh, by the way, here's a dude. Right? That probably would be a little bit more of an appropriate translation. There was a dude and his name was John. And it's designed to provoke that kind of visceral, gut-wrenching, like, ew, that's not the right time to use that word. Kind of a low thing, right? It'd be the equivalent of walking into the Oval Office and walking up to President Obama and giving him a fist bump and be like, thanks, dude, great job. It's not really the appropriate time to do that. That's appropriate on the basketball court. That may be appropriate on the disc golf course. That is not appropriate in the Oval Office. And that's kind of the contrast as to what John wants us to feel. All of the greatness and grandeur of the one who we'd find out is named Christ. And then here's a guy. And where Christ exists prior to the creation of time and space, this guy... Actually, he's sent from God. He, he, he shows up on the scene late. He's not from the beginning. He's not filled with this grandeur. He's not filled with this glory. He shows up late. He shows up as a messenger. In fact, actually, verse 7, he shows up not even with a story of his own. He shows up telling us about someone else's story. He shows up as a witness. Bearing witness about the one who is coming. He's a witness to Christ. Now this is fun to think about. No testimony is established without multiple witnesses. But John is at this point kind of the last in a long line. The triune God has been testifying about who Christ is from the very beginning. God has been enjoying himself in perfect bliss and harmony. And then upon creation, the very creation itself tells of who God is. Psalm 19 tells us that. Romans 1 tells us that. There's no place where you can go where it doesn't sing of the glory of God. There's no language group that doesn't understand the glory of God in creation. In some way it tells us there is a God and He is mighty and great. And the angels have been doing this from the beginning. It's beautiful when you get that in Isaiah, you know, that moment where we're we're brought into heaven just kind of briefly to get a glimpse of what glory looks like. And as Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, he's overwhelmed, again, with the sensory, the sight, smell, sound, initially not even of the Lord himself, but just the angels. They're singing, shaking the door frames. Now, you guys sing fantastically. You don't rattle the door frames yet. You don't also happen to be creatures of fire that are producing smoke off to the side and these you know, amazing you know, critters with wings and eyes and terrifying in and of themselves. 
They've been testifying from the moment that they were made that this is the great and mighty God and he would take on the name of Jesus. But the second person of the Trinity is glorious in himself. And the prophets of old, the entirety of the Old Testament have been witnessing, pointing forward, saying, there's one coming. He's going to show up. Be ready for when he is. He'll be a suffering servant. He'll lay down his life for his people. He'll win the great battle. He will be the Lord of hosts. He will have victory. It's all throughout the scriptures. There is one coming. And then there's John. (laughs) A guy. Taking a a testimony, a witness that's been happening from the moment of creation, well, before the moment of creation, but all the way through up until him, here is a guy. Happens to be a particularly brilliant guy. He's the godliest man on the planet. Who has a task to bear witness about the light so that all would believe. It's his task. His task is like the great parade. His task is to be the horses and the soldiers with the costumes and the marching band and the drums and the horns. His task was to say, be ready, glory is coming. It's not here yet, but it's going to be. Be ready, glory is coming. And it's important to note, verse 8, he's not the light. John's a guy. He's a dude. He's a regular kind of fellow. He'd fit in great here except for the whole funky dress and probably smelling bad and all kinds of weird stuff. But he's a normal human. Pointing to glory that would come. And you think about this. We have this idea kind of built in in a lot of places in our lives. You know, if you ever go to like a, a concert... Have you ever been to a concert where the big act came out immediately at the beginning of the show? Very rarely, right? Normally there's always an opening act to kind of get everybody in the mood to understand, okay, I'm ready to actually enjoy some music now. Usually the opening ones are kind of bad, but that's a different story altogether. Have you ever been in a situation where a dignitary or a politician or somebody important stood up and started talking without introducing themselves? When I was in elementary school, I got to hear Henry Kissinger speak. It was like the introduction itself was enough to put me to sleep. Much less when Mr. Kissinger got up there and I was gone at that point. We have this idea, again, it's kind of built into who we are to make us ready for glory. But you see, part of what not John the Baptist, but John the writer here, is doing, is preparing us for a question that's going to follow. He's preparing us to think about Christ as glory, to think about Christ as God, to think about Christ as this divine and glorious person. But he's preparing us for a question of, will you yield to him? That's what he's, he's building it. 
right? So when it hits in the end of this paragraph, it's going to hit like you know, Mike Tyson uppercut. It's going to hurt by the end. He sets the stage, he sets the witness, and then John, in kind of beautiful and classic fashion, gets to where the arrival would be in verse 9, and then just kind of quickly moves past it. It's really going to show up in verse 14, but he's, again, pushing us to that question. The true light, Christ, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So Christ is arriving. John has been pointing us to this glory. He's been pointing us to this truth. He's been pointing us to this one who would arrive, and Christ was coming into the world. And I love the description that's given to him. He was the true light. An idea that would have throughout the scripture, it would have conveyed the idea of this is God. This is the glory of God. You may not have noticed it in all of our readings, but it was in Psalm 4. It was in what we've sung. The idea of light being God's glory. And here he is. And you think about light and what it means, and it would really kind of the idea of truth and life. Those are kind of your two key elements connected to the idea of light. Without light, you can't see what's happening. Right? You turn the lights off in your house, and it's kind of problematic. I remember in seminary where we had a giant ice storm. I was living up off of Arrowwood, and it knocked the power out. Uh, not the power out to our street or to our neighborhood, but to our portion of the entire grid. Like, all of the western half of Charlotte lost its power. That would actually have been close to 15 years ago this, you know, February or whatever. And it was amazing because, you know, normally in Charlotte, you can go out in the middle of the night and read a newspaper at one in the morning. It's so bright just by ambient light, you could, you could do that. It took us over an hour just to find the flashlights because it was so black with no ambient light and no moon, we thought we were going to break our necks because you couldn't see anything. In the absence of light, you lose the sense of truth. You can't see what's taking place. The absence of light, you, you lose life. Think about what happens to Earth if we stop getting light for just an you know, extended period of time. The plants die, and if the plants die, what happens? Everything dies. Right? Everything gone, and it's all gone. So Christ, this light, this glory of God, this uh, truth of God, this life itself is coming into the world. And as part of what he's doing, he's enlightening everyone. Ooh, now this is interesting. This glory of God is coming into the world. It's coming inside creation. No longer outside of creation. No longer simply the agent of creation, but stepping into it and accomplishing something as he does. And he's sharing truth and life and light. And not just with just a couple, but with everyone. And there's kind of two aspects to this. One is he's enlightening all of mankind to the reality of who God is. All people. And again, you think about this, we assume so much with where we're at. Right? Many of us have grown up in the church and praise the Lord for that. I mean, great. I hope everybody grows up in the church. Many of us have grown up knowing the scriptures. Great. I hope everybody grows up knowing the scriptures. But we forget kind of the progressive revelation of God. I mean, remember, there was a point where the prophet's getting ready to go back and kind of help take care of Israel. And he's like, uh, God, by the way, what do we even call you? I don't have a name for you. Would you please tell us a name other than the God? Can we have something? Because we don't really know who you are that much. 
And then when it comes time for him to really tell them who he is, he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, and says, oh, by the way, you want to know who I am? Go look at my law. And that's the best way to figure out what my character is like, who I am. I'm holy, I'm just, I'm righteous, I'm true. But it's not until Christ comes inside creation that we get to see all of God's kind of character, glory, grandeur, and put in a package that we understand the most clearly. He's righteous. Well, I mean, I can understand that kind of in concept, but he's an infinite God. What does righteousness look like? I got an idea. Why don't we put him inside flesh and then I see what righteousness looks like? Jesus is a man. Just like me, just like all the other men in the room. He didn't have a sin nature, but just like all of the men. He's a man. And he would show what righteousness looks like and what love of neighbor looks like and what justice looks like and what mercy looks like. He shows what truth is. He shows us God. Philippians 2, Colossians 1 make this so clear. The image of the invisible God and he's showing us who God is. And for some people, that would be a truth that they would see and reject. But for others, that would be a truth they see and again yield to. John is setting us up for that question again. We have the witness telling us of Christ. Will you yield to Christ? We have Christ arriving and showing us who God is. Again, will you yield to Christ? But it gets even worse. Because we know the answer, don't we? You watch the evening news, you can see there are so many that do yield to Christ, but there are so many that don't. In verse 10, he continues the story. We get from the great arrival of Christ to this great rejection. He, Christ, he was in the world. He steps inside time and space. He steps inside creation. He steps inside flesh and blood. He steps inside a womb. That is just shocking to me. I I cannot, I mean, jaw-dropping. I cannot get over that. That he would have stepped inside a womb. Oh, by the way, while sustaining the woman whose womb it is. And then submitted himself to her parenting. And you know that no matter how good of a parent she was, she was a rotten parent compared to Lord God himself. I mean, this is the only begotten son of the father. And you're trying to parent that one. I mean, you know she's going to fall short. How many times does she leave him in a poopy diaper? Agent of creation in a poopy diaper. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, agent of creation. He participated in this creative action. And yet, they don't know him. And there's an aspect here where John is specifically referring kind of to the Gentiles, to the nations, not to the Jews, you know, to the ones who don't have the Old Testament. But saying, look, Christ came in. And he is truth. And he is light. And he is life. And he is everything that you have needed and you have longed for. And your soul has craved and distorted. And you Gentiles, the world has said, I'll pass. Thanks, but no thanks. 
You know, that unconditional love that I've craved from the moment that I was old enough to understand it, I'll pass on that. You know, that idea of meaning in my life, why am I here, what am I supposed to be, I'll pass on that. You know, that idea of forgiveness for the bad things I've done, removal of guilt, a conscience that doesn't bother me when I try to go to sleep at night, I'll pass on that. They turn. And if you were new to the story, well, you say, well, that's terrible. But, but maybe, they, you know, that's the outsiders. That was the world. That was the Gentiles. Maybe the Jews at least handled, handled it correctly. No. He came to his own. Came to the Jews. They have the Old Testament. They have an entire massive book pointing them to him. You know, all of this is pointing them to Christ, and he shows up, and, and their problem is not that they didn't know him. He came to his own people. They didn't receive him. You get this idea that the world is rejecting because of a lack of understanding. Not so much with the Jews. It's the way he's described with Adam and Eve, right? Eve was tricked by the serpent, but Adam sinned knowingly. The world rejects Christ so much, they they don't understand, they they don't get. His people, the Jews, they knew exactly who they were rejecting. There's one of my favorite parts of the birth narrative. You know, they're asking the question, oh, oh, where does it say the Messiah is going to be born? And all the Jewish scholars they know, they say, oh, by the way, he's going to be born there. And so the wise men go there to visit, right? And do any of the Jews just happen to follow up like an investigative journalist, at least? <laughs> oh, the Messiah is supposed to be there. We got a wacky star in the sky, and we got like strange guys coming and looking for him. Why don't we at least go look in, you know, Bethlehem? No, they don't. They just don't care. They've rejected him. Again, John's setting us up for that question. How will you handle the Lord Christ? How will you handle the light and life of the world who has come inside it? How will you handle the Son of God? And that right there, honestly, we could stop the sermon right there. Maybe you want to. And it would be an okay sermon. It'd be true, it'd be right, and it would be just, and it would be glorious. It would be amazing. Well, maybe not the sermon, but the truth would be. But God doesn't stop there. He continues actually with one step further in the story to explain why Christ came in. Even in the midst of all of this rejection, rejection from the Gentiles, rejection from the Jews, you have verse 12 and 13, which kind of frames the whole conversation. But even in the midst of all this rejection to those who did receive him, who believed in him, who trusted him, who claimed him, who who were absorbed under his name, those that were transformed, they become the children of God. And there's two aspects of this becoming the children of God. There's two kind of key elements that you have to understand. One, becoming the child of God happens, it's positional, it happens immediately upon conversion. Whenever a saint, by the redeeming work of God happening inside of them, you know, God comes into the life of the sinner, he transforms them, they're justified in heaven. 
right? That takes place up in glory before the throne room of God. They're justified there, and they're legally adopted there. And that's fun to think about. It doesn't have, that adoption's not taking place here. Thank the Lord it doesn't have to go through the state of South Carolina's courts, right? It happens in the divine courts above. God immediately adopts us, and we are positionally and permanently and legally His. The second that I am transformed and I become a Christian, I belong to God. And that's amazing. But it doesn't even stop there. That I've positionally already become a child of God, but even as that has happened, he continues to work in me so that I become to live like a child of God. So not only am I transformed in that one split second of a moment where I become adopted saint of the Lord, I am a child of the Most High, but I'm transformed so that day after day and week after week and year after year, I live differently so that I actually look like one. All of the kind of gender confusion that has hit our country is kind of a couple of steps forward in the U.K., and you remember me telling you a story, it was probably a year ago now, I guess, of the lady who uh, was tired of the, the tax break that married people got and single people didn't. And so she wanted the tax break. So she went to the courts. And this is my favorite. I, I, I applaud her. I laugh so hard. It makes me just chuckle with the absurdity of it. She went to the court and married herself. And because legally the UK is worse off and wackier than we are, they let her. So she is legally married to herself so that she can get the married tax break. It's hysterical. It's comical, right? It's ridiculous. But that legal transformation doesn't make it any positionally different. Just because legally she was pronounced married, it doesn't mean that there's suddenly two people in her home. It doesn't mean that there's you know, twice the manpower working in the home or woman power working in the home as a lady. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's now two jobs and two sources of income. It doesn't mean that there's twice as much stuff or crud or two toothbrushes. There's no transformation, daily change that's happened. It's just a, you know, it's kind of a positional thing that didn't mean that much, I guess, at that point. God beautifully does both for us. He legally makes us his child that can't be taken away, but he also continues to work in us day by day by day by day so that our lives continue to reflect it. So that after years and years with him, we look differently. You know, honestly, this is one of my great hopes in heaven is that this process that he's begun now to make me look like a child of the king to make me look like an adopted son of God, it's going to be completed someday. And you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look like I belong in heaven. Do you think about that? When you get there, you're going to look like you belong. You're not going to look out of place. And you're not going to look like you, you stumbled into the wrong store at the mall and you're like, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. Right? You're going to get there and go, of course I'm supposed to be here. I've been transformed. I, I look like I'm in the part and the place. Immediate transformation and progressive transformation. But the key here is kind of at the end, and this is where we'll end with our application. 
God gives this transformation. He begives the, the condition of becoming the children of God, not to those who were born of blood or of the will of the flesh nor the will of man. We'll paraphrase those to say not biology and not pedigree. Those that become the children of God, it does not mean that they were born because they were, they were born to believing parents. It doesn't mean that they, they grew up in the church. It doesn't mean that, uh, I love the last one, the, the will of man. It doesn't mean that you know, mom and dad said, hey, you know what? We're going to have a Christian child. Let's go make a Christian child. If only it were that easy. Yes. <laughs> True story. But instead, it's not a design of man, but it is the mercy of God. That in the face of all of human design, human will, human prerogatives, that the Lord works His mercy. The Lord works His mercy. So our our challenge is this is going to be again, how do we respond to Christ? How do we respond to Christ? Are we going to heed the warning of John? Are we going to turn a deaf ear? Are we going to follow in the pattern of the world and of the Jews who said at some point, I mean, he's nice and all, but I'll pass, thanks. Or I'll take a kind of half a helping and send the dish on so it looks like I actually ate it, but I really don't want it. How will we respond to the Lord Jesus? And to the children of the church particularly, this is a great danger, right? For the children of the church, those are the ones that, if anyone can be qualified as born of the will of the flesh nor the will of the man, those are are us. The ones who have been privileged to have this be our DNA all of our lives and to never bend the knee. To play the game, to talk the talk, but to never have the transformation inside where we are captivated by the glory of Christ. You see, so often we talk about salvation in terms of getting out of hell, and that is important. Let's be clear. Or talk about salvation in terms of uh, having our sins forgiven, and that is important. Let's be clear. We should. But sometimes we forget about talking about salvation in the concept of being captivated with the glory of God. To be dumbstruck at the beauty of the Trinity. And the challenge that I would pose to you today, saint or sinner, how will you respond to the glory of Christ? Will you bend the knee? Will you be captivated with Christ? Will you receive and believe or will you pass? A heart unfeeling like fat, slow to listen and stiff-necked. How will we respond? Will we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, I want to understand your glory. Show me a little more. Help me in my unbelief. Because so many, so many in our nation have that same kind of moment of experience that I had at that parade in London where I had all the pomp and circumstance and then the men with the bowler caps show up and I go, seriously, what's the big deal? 
And unfortunately, that is the American narrative toward the Lord Jesus. What's the big deal? May it never be so for us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't even understand one one trillionth of your glory. But we're designed to worship you. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts even further that we might see Christ. For he is the visible, uh, the, the image of the invisible God. He is the Logos, the Word. The incarnate God. Change us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.